Hello and welcome to The Spectator podcast. I'm Lara Prendergast. This week, the Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi mysteriously disappeared at his country's consulate in Istanbul and is presumed dead. The world is outraged, but why was he killed and what happens now? Closer to home in Ireland, the Europhiles seem to reign supreme, but is there an argument for Ireland joining Britain in leaving the EU? Meanwhile, three of our top public schools are giving up the common entrance exam. So, should we lament the end of the eccentric admission test? Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi is believed to have been murdered in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. In this week's cover piece, John Bradley, who knew him, argues that Khashoggi got on the wrong side of the Saudi ruling family and that they operate a bit like the mafia. So, what does this all mean for Saudi Arabia's global reputation? Bill Law, a journalist covering the Gulf states, joins me from Istanbul, and I'm also joined by Akbar Shahid Ahmed from Washington, D.C., a HuffPost foreign reporter who focuses on the Middle East. So, Bill, you also knew Jamal Khashoggi. What can you tell us about him and his relationship with the Saudi regime? Yes, I, I have. I met him first in 2002 in, uh, in Jeddah. He was then the deputy editor-in-chief of Arab News. And at the time, I was interested in speaking with him because he knew Osama bin Laden and had known him when he was a young man and had interviewed, subsequently interviewed him many times. I was also interested because he had established himself as something of a rarity in Saudi Arabia. That was as a journalist who was pushing the limits in a very conservative, very repressive society. And he was pushing it as a journalist. So I, I respected him for that. And, and, and I took an immediate liking to him. He's a very personable chap with a great sense of humor and, and a kind of ironic detachment from some of the world in which he found himself, which, which I think was necessary because in Saudi Arabia, to survive, you need to make certain pragmatic decisions, which he made and continued to make. He was uh, editor of Al Watan. He, he lasted only for a very short time because he published a material critical of the religious elite. He came back as the editor of Watan and, and then lasted three years that time. He was always a person that was pushing the limits, uh, but doing it in a very pragmatic and, and, and thoughtful way, which I think you need to do in Saudi Arabia. You need to accept the reality of the situation in which you find yourself. And he was very much a proponent for a freer media, very much someone who felt that if Saudi Arabia was going to break out of the shackles of its very conservative, deeply religious society, it could only do that when the press and media was freer. Bill, I mean, given that you knew him, I suppose the events of the last few weeks must have been quite shocking. I mean, what, what do you make of, of the story and his disappearance? It's very shocking. It's very disturbing. I hope, against hope, I think now, because the longer he's missing, the more certain it appears that he is dead. I think a, I, I think a, a voice has been lost, a, a voice that, that was urging some thoughtful criticism of Saudi Arabia, of Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, of his vision 2030, which Jamal supported. In the first column he wrote for the Washington Post, he spoke of his support for vision 2030 his support for the Saudi government and his love for his country. You know, this is a man who really did have the best interests of Saudi Arabia at heart. The fact that he has disappeared, appears to be dead, the manner in which it happened, the way in which the Saudi officials are utterly incapable of answering a simple question. Where is Jamal Hashoji? He entered the consulate in Istanbul. He did not come out. Where is he? 
They have not provided any answer, any satisfactory answer to that question. I think it's a huge blow. It's also a huge blow to dissidents, critics, Saudis living abroad, because this happened in Istanbul. It says to those people, I can get you anywhere. You dare criticize me, I will reach out and I will get you. And if I can't get you, I will do something with your family who's still in Saudi Arabia. So it's very disturbing on many levels. And the final point I want to make on this is that journalists are being arrested, are being murdered throughout the world at really astonishing rates. And those journalists who have the bravery to speak out against authoritarian regimes are paying a, a terrible price. And I, I really fear that Jamal is one of those. Akbar, can I ask you what you make of the story and, and what do you think Khashoggi did to anger the Saudi regime? Sure, Lara. I think it's so important. And, you know, being based here in Washington, this is a lot of the conversation. And, I, and importantly so, it's so important to remember that Khashoggi was not a dissident. He would not describe himself as someone who was, you know, trying to oppose the monarchy or to call for some radical transformation of Saudi Arabia. And I think that's something really striking because what it shows to me is the disdain of the ruling Saudi elites now, the increasing disdain for any of their own population, their 20 million you know, people, many of them, the vast majority of them under 30 years old. And I think that's really striking and we hadn't sort of seen that as much before. Saudi Arabia, yes, has always been an absolute monarchy linked to a religious establishment, but there was previously more of a sense of consensus between at least various branches of the royal family that were channels in for regular Saudis. Now, as more and more Saudis have actually become educated, have become entrepreneurial, have become slightly more outspoken about the changes they'd like to see in their country, the regime is essentially saying, we don't want your opinion. And in fact, if anything, we will treat you fundamentally as property. We will treat you as if you have this passport, you have no right to express your dignity, opinion, no matter where you may be in the world. And I think that's something we need to be cognizant of looking at the Crown Prince's reform plans, which as a lot of commentators have said are very important and touch on key things in Saudi that have needed to be fixed for a long time, whether it's the overdependence on oil or restrictions on women that seem medieval in 2018. He's doing all this, but he's not doing it for his people. He's doing it as a sort of, I'm handing this down from the throne, you should be grateful. And we've seen this trend throughout recent months in Saudi, uh, most notably with also the arrest of a number of prominent women's rights activists. The, the, the same people who had campaigned for the driving ban to be lifted in Saudi have actually been rounded up in vast numbers starting in May and June, right when the driving ban was lifted. So this is a regime that's essentially saying the people are below us and they don't get to decide what we're doing. And I think that's something people here in Washington are recognizing more and more. And given that they have connections, you know, people don't just know Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. They know people like Jamal Khashoggi. They know other Saudis who have been incredibly educated and pioneering and getting themselves out there. People in Washington know that. And I think that's why you see, you saw yesterday, 22 senators calling for potential human rights related sanctions on Saudi Arabia. I think the conversation about Saudi's relationship with the West is going to change quite significantly. Bill, John makes the point in his piece that Khashoggi wasn't exactly what you'd call a reforming liberal. And and he says that we should actually be focusing on his relationship with the Muslim Brotherhood. I mean, do you think that's a fair assessment? Uh, No, I don't. I think that's a bit of a red herring. I really felt strongly that that was an unfortunate slant in that article. I think that uh, certainly the Jamal Hashirji that I know or, or, or knew didn't push 
a brotherhood line upon me in any way. That's not to say that he wasn't reflecting some of the views and attitudes of the brotherhood, but that's not the central story in this case. And Akbar has touched upon it. The, the really key story here is the Saudi government's treatment of its citizens and the message that it wishes to send and the response also of, of the Western powers, primarily the Americans, but also the Brits. I don't think that we should be focusing on whether or not he was in some ways, as, as John suggests, uh, an agent for the Muslim Brotherhood. I, I think that that story is, is a red herring. So I have to say that while it's a very strong piece, I was disappointed in the slant that, that he chose to take. Akbar, do you agree that it's wrong to focus on his relationship with the Muslim Brotherhood? Yeah, Lara, and, and what I'd say is I think it's really important to put this in the context of dictators, brutal, vicious dictators throughout the region, right? Whether that's Bashar al-Assad, a mass murderer, uh, Sisi in Egypt who has jailed tens of thousands of his own people. The line constantly, because they know it plays in the West, is if it's not us, you will get those guys with beards. You will get the Muslim Brotherhood. And I think that that's a line Western powers and international observers have fallen for to really detrimental effect for decades. I mean, that's sort of the counter-revolution to the Arab Spring that we saw manifest in ISIS. You know, that's the counter-revolution that we've seen previously manifest in Al-Qaeda, manifest in a Taliban government. I mean, this idea that if you give people in the region any kind of dignity, they will become religious fundamentalists is a really pernicious one. And I just I just add to that, that piece sort of said Khashoggi is a, was a threat to the Saudi ruling elite. And that nowhere in his writing or in, you know, a lot of people here knew him. I, I also been in contact with him. Like, there was no evidence of, of this idea that he was a leader of the Saudi opposition that was sort of waiting to take over from the, the Sauds. And if anything, I think he saw very clearly the West has looked at Saudi Arabia and said, look, your biggest problem is that you're too Islamic or you're Islamic in the wrong ways. Um, and I think former U.S. President Barack Obama has said some interesting stuff around there's not a huge value in other people coming and telling people in the region how to practice Islam. Really, perhaps the problem here is the fundamental dignity and rights that aren't being given rather than saying, look, if you just tweak this approach to Islam, you can jail as many people as you want. That's not sort of getting us more stability. And though just finally, I mean, in his piece, John also talks about how this is quite a sort of brazen, almost mafia-style murder, and actually that that's how the Saudis often operate. Do you think other dissidents should be worried about these kind of methods? Well, yes, I do. A couple of weeks ago, or about a month ago now, a Saudi dissident in London was, was attacked on the street in broad daylight by two people who believed to be from the Saudi embassy. They, they left the country the same evening. The police are very slow to investigate. It allowed these two gentlemen to leave. There are threats to families in, in Saudi Arabia. A Saudi student studying in Canada who had chosen to remain. You may recall that the Saudis got very angry with Canada when the Canadian foreign minister protested at the arrest of Ray Badawi's uh, sister, Samara Badawi, and, uh, and students were told to come home. Saudi students studying in Canadian universities. Not all of them did. One of those students, his brothers and a cousin, I believe, were subsequently arrested in Saudi Arabia. So yes, I think it's very, very concerning. That's why it's, it, it's absolutely critical for the Western governments to speak up, to demand answers, because what has happened with Mohammed bin Salman, and it, and it began when Donald Trump went to Riyadh in his first foreign visit back in, in May of last year, was it was like a green light. It was a green light to, to say, we can do whatever we want. He's headstrong, he's arrogant, he often acts without thought, 
as we've seen in Yemen, as we've seen with, with the seizure of Harari, the uh, uh, Lebanese prime minister, as we've seen with the Gulf dispute against Qatar. He doesn't think about consequences. He acts. And, and really, it must be brought home to him very loudly and very clearly that this behavior is utterly unacceptable. In, in a couple of weeks, he's got this future investment show, really. He unrolled it last year, and it received a huge amount of positive coverage. You know what? The New York Times has pulled out of supporting this festival. Also, other corporations have to do the same thing. You know, we have to speak up. We have to speak very loudly and very clearly to this uh, very arrogant young man and very dangerous young man. Thank you, Bill and Akbar. Ireland has long been considered the most pro-EU country among the member states. But is this actually the case? In this week's issue, John Waters examines the notion of Irexit and whether the Irish are actually less keen on the EU than we all like to think. John argues that the country suffers from poor leadership, a passive dependence on other states and a media that merely toes a pro-EU line. He joins me now together with Brendan O'Neill. John, you speak in your piece about this IREXIT meeting that you went to in Dublin. Can you tell us a bit more about what that was like? Well, the meeting was organised with the view to kind of opening a discussion about the possibility of IREXIT and I was invited to speak and Nigel Farage was speaking there also. And I'm broadly in principle in favour of, of IREXIT. I don't like what the EU is doing to Ireland. But I have this thing that I don't think the present generation of Irish leaders is capable of leading us anywhere except into perdition. And so I, I spoke on the, in those terms. But what happened afterwards was interesting. I mean, there was a, because Nigel Farage was there, the media started to pay attention to something they normally would have ignored. The Irish Times takes this line from The Guardian. RTE, the National Broadcaster, take their line from the BBC. Everybody else takes their line from those two, from the Irish Times and RTE. So you end up with this particular, this view, which is really that, you know, all Brexit was just really stupid old people, uneducated, deciding to, to give a slap in the face to the elites. And, you know, it has to be reversed. And that was the tone of the conversation, of course, in Britain from the very outset. And continually, I believe, but that's what I'm picking up. And Ireland is pretty much the same, you know, even though we never have had a proper discussion about either Brexit or Irexit or indeed our relationship with the European Union, which, you know, if you look at the history of it, is pretty checkered and, you know, by no means uh, uh, necessarily all a good thing. Brendan, John also says in his piece that there's secretly more support for Brexit than might seem apparent. Is that something that you've noticed as well? Absolutely. I think there are many people in Ireland who are Eurosceptic. And even when, you know, Remainers in Britain will often say, well, all the polls show that people in Ireland are very supportive of the EU and so on and so forth. But even when polls do show that, I think it's important to recognise that Irish people's attachment to the EU is quite flimsy and quite changeable. There's no real historical, institutional, political loyalty to Brussels or the Brussels oligarchy. You only have to look back at recent events in Ireland over the past decade or so. You know, the Irish people rejected the Nice Treaty in 2001 in a referendum. They rejected the Lisbon Treaty in 2008. I was in Ireland in 2008 and there was posters and graffiti all over Dublin and Cork and other places I visited expressing really strong opposition to the EU. And again, the referendum, they voted against the Lisbon Treaty. In both cases, of course, they were forced to vote again, both on Nice and Lisbon. And the second time round, under severe pressure from the political class, they voted the right way, supposedly. 
And then if you just look at when the Troika came to Ireland in 2010 and 2011, like this kind of, you know, neo-colonialist financial clique coming to tell the Irish people how to conduct their economic affairs, the EU again was hugely unpopular. And then even elements of the Irish Times, which John's description of the Irish Times is is very, very correct. Even in 2011, even the Irish Times was expressing some element of dissent in relation to the EU. So there have always been very strong ripples and even outbursts of rebellion against the EU in Ireland. John, I mean, you talk in your piece about this possible support for our exit, but you also then talk about this feeling of incompetence and sort of not being able to stand up to the EU. I mean, why, why do you think the Irish feel that way? Well, the key to the Ireland's relationship with the EU has been money from the outset. I mean, there has been absolutely zero cultural connection made or attempted. We talk about Europe as though it were synonymous with the EU, and of course it's not in the slightest. The EU is a bureaucratic institution, a pseudo-government, which imposes its will on all the member countries, but the member countries are never actually enabled or encouraged to create any kind of common bond that would, for example, create the possibility of a United States of Europe or something like that. That has never been... People talk about it in vague round terms, federal Europe and all this kind of thing, but in terms of cultural connections, there's, it's absolutely zero. So our relationship with the European Union is, is totally hypocritical. It's purely about money. We, we, we got, a, I don't know, something like 40, 50 billion quid's worth of cohesion and structural funding, something enormous in, in those terms, although nothing like as enormous as what we lost under one heading alone, which is fisheries, which we gave away at the outset. So, you know, as soon as we stopped becoming net beneficiaries of Europe, Irish people started to kind of show their true hand, which in relation, as Brendan says, in relation to the Nice Treaty and the Lisbon Treaty, more or less saying, you know, we don't really want this. But you see, once the economy appeared to right itself, and I use those words advisedly because this is all sleight of hand, you know, Ireland is a very strange economy, a very fake economy, in fact, because it depends on outside elements. Our indigenous economy is very, very weak and always has been. But once the, the, the weather starts to change, once the climate starts to change, then you find the liberal institutions, the media, starting to turn again. And they become like shepherds in the culture, where they shepherd people into forms of thought and out of other forms of thought. And, and, and at the moment, you're not allowed to give any more than you can say a, a good word about Donald Trump. You cannot say a good word about Brexit. You certainly can't say a good word about Brexit even though probably one day it will happen, because if it doesn't happen because of its own dynamic, it will happen because the EU will collapse all around us. What this really means is that we don't really have a conduit for a proper collective conversation in Ireland. I think the conversation in the United Kingdom is much, much better than the one we have here. I guess it's because we're so small and and we have so few options. But it's really quite terrifying sometimes the extent to which a small number of media institutions, uh, radio stations, newspapers, and a small number of journalists can control the entire national conversation. Brendan, I mean, the prevailing narrative at the moment seems to be that Brexit is going to be a disaster for the UK. But I mean, what do you think happens if Brexit is actually a success? What what will that mean for Ireland and Irexit? I think it could be really beneficial for Ireland. The European Union, as an institution, has very little respect for national democracy or, or national traditions or national culture or anything to do with the nation states that are, are members of it. And you can really see that in relation to Ireland, perhaps more than any other EU member state, apart 
from Greece. The way the EU has looked down upon Ireland over the past decade or so has been at times just quite horrifying. I remember when during the referendums in Ireland in 2001 and 2008, the things that were said about the Irish people for having the temerity to vote against the expansion of the EU's rule were really shocking. You know, French newspapers said, you know, they were they were once the best pupils in the class and now they've spat in the soup. You know, that real infantilizing instinct that comes with most neo-colonial projects. You know, The Economist had a headline, The Ungrateful Irish. Across the EU and, and the media that supports the EU, there was this real sneering at the Irish people for daring to exercise their democratic right to reject these treaties and constitutions that they would be expected to, to live by. So I think a lot of Irish people back then really realised that the EU is not a good institution. I remember in 2008, there were all these public information posters in Dublin about the about litter and the posters said litter is disgusting and so are the people responsible for it and people were going around Dublin changing the word litter to the word Lisbon so that they said Lisbon is disgusting and so are all the people responsible for it and that was a real spirit of Irish rebellion against the EU which in fact is one of the things that inspired some of us actually to vote for Brexit in 2016 because we'd seen that Irish people had already made those kind of rebellious strikes against Brussels. So I think if, if Ireland can recover some of that memory of its Euro scepticism and if Brexit can be made to be a success, which I believe it can be, I really think there is a common interest between Ireland and Britain in standing up against the EU and just asserting themselves anew. And I think that would be a very good thing. And just finally, John, I mean, at the time of the referendum in 2016, there wasn't a huge amount to talk about Ireland, really. But now it seems that, you know, one of the key issues is the Irish border. And obviously the DUP are becoming a very important part in the Brexit negotiations. Do you, do you see a way of them getting around the issue of the Irish border? Oh, I don't. I, I, and I never have from the beginning. I mean, the only when you actually look at the facts of this, the only outcome, of the process as it is currently set out is a hard border. Anything else will be a fudge, a temporary fudge, which, you know, will fall apart. And, you know, these are the facts of the matter. And that dictates clearly that the, the correct course for Ireland would be to leave the EU along with uh, the United Kingdom. But that's actually, even though I am support of that, I, I support that, I actually also admit that it's actually impossible. This is the dilemma we're in now. And the reason it's impossible not, is nothing to do with the, the principle of our exit or the principle of Brexit. It's got to do with the fact that the kind of leadership which Ireland has developed, nurtured as it were, in the period during which we've been in the European Union and its antecedent institutions, the common market and, and the EC and so on, which is that, you know, we have lost the capacity to attract into politics people of vision and, and, and uh, entrepreneurship and imagination because such people would see no function for themselves in politics because politics in Ireland is no longer anything to do with seeing the future for your country. The future of your country is set out by the EU and all the leaders of our country so-called have to do is do what they're told. And so therefore the kind of people we've got leading our country are people who are prepared to do what they're told. And that's what happens. And so they're the last people you would want leading Ireland out of the European Union. You need to get rid of them. You need to find a new kind of leadership. And how do you do that when we have a media which refuses to even allow us to have a conversation and which starts this nonsense every time somebody raises their head to talk about the possibility of our exit? 
And Brendan, can I just ask you finally, I mean, do you think there's any risk that Brexit could damage Anglo-Irish relations? Yes, that is a risk. But I think that's because of the way in which Ireland has been so cynically exploited by the European Union and by certain British politicians, precisely as a way of slowing down Brexit or wounding Brexit or diluting Brexit or whatever else they hope to achieve. So the thing that worries me most at the moment is the way in which greater barriers and tensions are being created between Ireland and Britain, not by Brexit, where I think there is a natural shared outlook, potentially, but by the exploitation of Irish concerns by Brussels and also willingly by the political class in Dublin, very well described there by John as people who who do what they're told. So the way in which those anti-Brexit sections of the political elites are exploiting the border question and other Irish issues is the thing that could really cause damage, I think, to Anglo-Irish relations. And the other thing is, I think there's a real element of anti-Irish prejudice in some of this. If you read The Guardian or other newspapers and the way they talk about a return to war and if there's a hard border they'll be killing each other and slaughtering each other, there's this real ugly idea that the Irish are just these men and women of violence, they're just all these kind of overgrown, stupid, violent teenagers and only Britain and Brussels are keeping them apart and keeping them at peace. So that, I think, really sums up the the sneering element behind all of this, where it infantilizes the Irish and it tries to weaken British democracy. And as a consequence, people on both sides of the Irish Sea are losing out. Thank you, John and Brendan. Hello, I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and I present the weekly books podcast, at which you'll hear lively discussions from the best and most interesting critics and writers and authors out there, from Charlotte Rampling to Daniel Dennett, all the way past to Michael Morpurgo. I very much hope you'll give us a try. Just search for Spectator Books on the iTunes store. Now, in this week's magazine, Harry Mount laments the end of the Common Entrance exam, taken at age 11 to get into some of Britain's best public schools. St Paul's, Wellington College and Westminster are all scrapping these exams, heeding criticism that they are too stressful, esoteric and even bizarre to test school children adequately. Harry joins me now to discuss the death of the great British eccentric exam question. So Harry, you start your piece with a lament for the common entrance exam. What in particular was it that you liked about it? Well, it's a symptom of a general decline of what I call the great British eccentric exam question. So common entrance which began in 1904 is only coming to an end at three schools at Westminster, St Paul's and Wellington but I imagine it'll eventually die out and I understand why it used to be 14 gruelling exams over three days and it's now being reduced to just four exams and I understand children are examined all the rest of it but there is a general decline of, of the great British eccentric exam question and common entrance used to have Greek, Latin, French, Maths, English, all the rest of it and I talk about all Souls, the famous graduate Clever Clogs College at Oxford, which has got rid of its most difficult paper called Essay, which had literally one word in the question. In my case, it was miracles. And what do you think this tells us about contemporary society that these questions are being dropped? I think there's a, a decline in eccentricity and also a greater derision of it that Quite a lot of the questions, which I've listed quite a few of them in the article, are quite silly, you might say. How Anglo-Saxon was Anglo-Saxon England? Well, pretty Anglo-Saxon, I'd have thought. The price of bread tells you everything you need to know about the course of the French Revolution. Do you agree? And these are all ways of testing your mental gymnastics. And you might say 
they're pointless. But actually, I think a lot of those questions, in order to answer them well, you need A, to have a lot of knowledge, and B, not just to regurgitate it, but come up with an interesting answer. So a good question is from the latest All Souls exam last month, did the Enlightenment happen? Well, first of all, you've got to know what the Enlightenment was, and then you can play around with whether it actually did happen or its supposed effects did happen. So I think those exams which do test a lot of knowledge and then a playful, original, witty way of dealing with that knowledge are on the decline, and it's sad to lose those two strands. The questions that you talk about in the common entrance exam do sort of seem quite similar to the ones that you then get asked at an Oxbridge interview. I mean, do you think sort of common entrance was even at that stage prepping boys and girls for the possibility of Oxbridge? I think to a certain extent, and actually, obviously this article is mainly written by me to show how clever I am, how many exams I've done. But at the same time, I do say at one point in the article that when I show off about being the last year to do O-levels in 1986... Actually, I remember we used to revise our O-levels before the O-levels by looking at 1960s papers, which are much, much harder. And I, for this article, I found an old book I had of 1940s common entrance. Incredibly difficult. So at the risk of sounding fogish, all these exams, including the ones I took, were easier than the ones that took place before. Obviously, common entrance is an exam predominantly for public schools. That's I mean, right, do you yeah. think there's a slight kind of elitist aspect to it and that's perhaps why they're now being closed I, I, down? I, I, I couldn't say that for sure. No one's actually said that. And as I s- said to begin with, I, I completely understand getting rid of them because of these poor children are doing so many exams, 14 exams over three days. But I imagine part of it, again, is quite admirable that what they're replacing those 14 exams over three days with is four exams in verbal and non-reasoning maths and English, meaning that those people who, unlike me, haven't had the benefit of a rich family and a heavily sort of tutored education can get into these places. And the good thing most of these public schools are trying to do is to have more and more bursaries and to get people in who are highly intelligent if they haven't had the good fortune to have had their head stuffed full of Latin, Greek, maths, English, French, and all the rest of it. I could see why those tests are an admirable thing. So I'm not really taking against the change. I just think one of the side effects of it is is the sad decline of eccentricity of exam questions, which, looking back at them, can be very, very funny, as well as very difficult. I feel like, just finally, I should then ask you, can you answer any of these questions? I mean, is there one in particular that you'd Well, I'm very like glad you asked me, Lara, because <laughs> there's only one, just looking at them now, that actually, including the ones I did when I was 12, one of the questions is, using Newton's first and second laws, explain why drivers should wear seatbelts. Well, I'm afraid I can't remember what Newton's first and second laws are, but I can do the Latin question from the Latin O-level of 1964, which says, choose any five of the following and give the modern names for them. It doesn't actually tell you they're, in fact, Roman British towns, so I'll read a few of them out to see if the listeners can get them. Aquae Sulis, Camulodunum, Diva, Iberacum, Iscadumnumorum, can't pronounce it, Pons Aelii, Verulamium. And I, I could do, before I swatted up for this podcast, I could do Bath, Colchester, Chester, York. I couldn't do Iscadumnoniorum, which is Exeter, Verulamium, St Albans, and actually I can't remember what Pons Aelii is. So... Incredibly difficult. If anyone's listening, they'll have have to let us know. Harry, thank you. Thanks so much. And that's all for this week. If you've enjoyed the podcast, do subscribe, rate and review on the iTunes store. We always like to hear from you. And if you pick up this week's issue, you'll be able to read all the pieces discussed, as well as more from Ross Clark, Mark Forsyth and Lionel Shriver. 
Thanks for listening and do join us again next week. Thank you.